Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with reporter Paul Monies, who covers state agencies and public health for Oklahoma Watch. He recently wrote about Oklahoma Watch filing a lawsuit against a state agency over applications for the latest round of federal COVID-19 relief. Paul, why was it necessary to file the lawsuit? Well, we've been asking for a number of months now about uh, some of the applications involved under the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, That's the big chunk of federal money that came into the state in the second round of federal coronavirus relief. Uh, We first started asking about how much the health department was going to try and get for its pandemic center up in Stillwater along with the relocated public health lab. Um, They would not give it to us, um, and they cited some some memo from the Central uh, Purchasing Act um, at the Office of Management and Enterprise Services. So we asked them for all the applications, um, and they denied us again. And so we thought this should be transparent and open, and uh, we filed a lawsuit. How much does the state have uh, available to dole out under its share of the American Rescue Plan Act? Well, the state has about $1.87 billion in funding, um, and it has to basically allocate those funds by the end of 2024 and spend them by the end of 2026. So how did they collect the proposals? How did the state publicize the, the application process? Well, they were pretty open about um, wanting ideas and submissions from just the general public and other people. Um, so they started a, an online portal where you could submit applications and ideas uh, back in October. And uh, that portal was open from October until uh, April 1st. And they ended up getting you know thousands of submissions uh, that totaled actually about almost $18 billion in funding. And uh, that $18 billion, how many requests was that? Uh, that was probably about maybe 3,000 requests or ideas, I think. Um, and a lot of that was, a big chunk of that was requests from state agencies, uh, which just kind of goes into the transparency part of this. Normally, a state agency that's asking for money will do so publicly through the budget process at the legislature. Uh, this is all kind of secret for some reason. Uh, now, uh, we're not doing this ourselves at Oklahoma Watch. Uh, tell us about where we're getting some help. Yeah, we have a, a great attorney from uh, the Reporters Committee for Freedom of, of the Press. Um, Catherine Gardner uh, is actually uh, in her second year now at the Local Legal Initiative, which is a, 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 an initiative by the Reporters Committee to kind of put attorneys in different states to help with records issues. Um, she's helped us out before uh, on various things. She's helped me personally on getting a couple of letters sent to agencies to kind of wrest records from them. Uh, she's also been involved with us with um, a lawsuit against Epic Charter Schools that my colleague Jennifer Palmer has been involved in. Uh, and she's just great and we're, we're really happy to work with her. So explain a little bit about the danger in keeping funding applications like this uh, secret. Yeah, well, partly that the, they've been so open and transparent about getting ideas. It's kind of confusing why they would be so secretive about giving just applications. Now, they have said, well, you know, we'll go through the, the, the legislative and, and governor process for this. Uh, they've got a joint committee in the legislature that's kind of looking at these applications. And when things come up that they, they deem worthy of funding, they'll pull them up and put the, the 
application out there in the public before these committees. And if it actually gets the, the part where the governor funds it, that will definitely be an open application. But everything else has kind of fallen by the wayside. We don't know what's not being asked and put through that process. And so uh, I talked to some lawmakers, and one of them told me that, you know, it's almost like a shadow uh, budget process that nobody has any idea about. And we already have a pretty secretive process right now in Oklahoma for our budget anyway. It's usually kind of talked about during a session and unveiled in the last couple of weeks with very little input from the public and even some of the minority and majority party members. So what happens next in, in the process? Well, we, we filed a lawsuit last week, and we did not get any comments from the agency on the record, uh, I guess maybe because of pending litigation. Um, and so they're, they're yet to file their answer in court, uh, but we're watching that. And it may take a little while uh, to get that process sorted out, but hopefully um, it'll be pretty soon because these applications are out there right now at the legislature. All right, Paul, thanks so much. You can read uh, Paul Money's stories about the lawsuit uh, against OMES and the state and in trying to get the applications released and all of his other investigative work on our website at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Jennifer was one of the reporters who worked on a collaborative project with The Frontier that examined how the state distributed some federal COVID relief money meant to help students and teachers. Jennifer, we're talking about the Governor's Emergency Education Relief Fund. What did Governor Stitt spend the money on? Governor Stitt received almost $40 million from this um, fund through the CARES Act, and he divvied it up between five different programs. Our story that came out this week focused mainly on two of those, the Bridge the Gap Digital Wallet Program, which gave $1,500 school supply grants to low-income families, and the Stay in School Fund, which provided private school tuition grants to families who were impacted by COVID. Both programs were managed by the same Florida company. And when you took a look at those, what did you find? We found quite a few issues. Um, There were some irregular uh, ways that the contract came about. Um, It was a no-bid contract. There were several non-government employees who were making critical decisions about the contract. And there were some spending on items that were not educational, like TVs and smartwatches and exercise equipment. Now, federal COVID relief money for education is a topic you've been reporting on for a couple of years. What's important about these stories? We made a commitment in 2020 to really follow this money because it represents this unprecedented investment in education and in students across the country, particularly in Oklahoma, where our per pupil funding has lagged the rest of the country for for many, many years. So we really wanted to track this money and see how it was being spent and invested and be that watchdog for these dollars. And as you were, uh, you know, looking at this particular story, what What stuck out to you? One of the requirements of this program was that states were supposed to be really diligent and intentional about determining what students needed in the pandemic so that they could develop programs that would address those needs. Oklahoma didn't really do that. In fact, when federal regulators came in 
um, in 2021 and looked at our program, they found that the decisions about how to spend the funds were being made by just a couple of people. And they didn't really do any type of needs assessment and survey students or teachers or parents. It's It almost seemed like they were, instead of asking what students needed and developing programs for those students, they were asking Class Wallet, the Florida company, what programs they could do and developing programs for the company. Now, this wasn't a quick turnaround story, was it? How long did you guys spend reporting this? So I started asking questions about this story and, and doing some initial reporting last fall, but I kept getting more questions than answers. Um, I was having trouble. And so I set it aside and worked on some other stories. And um, it, at some point, um, you heard reporters at the Frontier, another nonprofit investigative uh, news outlet here in Oklahoma, were also working on a story about the program. Why the decision to collaborate on this one? Well, my first instinct was to compete and to get the story out quicker um, before they had it. But after giving it a little bit of thought, I realized that I had been struggling to make headway on the story for a couple of months. And I thought it was a good opportunity to um, to collaborate and get some additional manpower because it, it was difficult um, to get the information. And so having some extra reporters on it was a good idea. Um, so I reached out to the Frontier and, and asked if they wanted to collaborate. And that was a first for us, um, for these two organizations. Um, but it, it turned out really well. I respect their work a lot. Any follow-up stories we should be expecting on this? I think there will be some follow-up stories for sure. We are um, particularly interested in several reports that haven't been released yet. One that the state paid a private contractor to review this program and has refused to release the report and a second by the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Inspector General, and that audit should be out soon. Thanks, Jennifer. You can read this story as well as all of other Jennifer Palmer's investigative work on education at OklahomaWatch.org, where you can also subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with reporter Whitney Bryan, who covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch. And her latest story looks at how law enforcement approached those suffering a mental health crisis. Whitney reported an award-winning series in partnership with State Impact Oklahoma about Oklahoma City Police Department's mental health response. A video that went viral last month took her reporting to Tulsa, where police are under scrutiny for their treatment of a woman who was experiencing a bipolar episode. Whitney, for those who haven't seen the footage, tell us what happened. Well, it was about a 90-minute interaction between police and this woman. Um, her name is LaDonna Paris. She's a 70-year-old great-grandmother who lives in Tulsa, a black woman, and she was experiencing a bipolar episode. Um, she sounds in the video, you know, very frantic. She's mumbling. She kind of never stops talking. And she had locked herself in the bathroom of a Habitat for Humanity restore. So police show up and they're outside of the locked bathroom. Um, 
Throughout the video, you hear police officers making kind of crude comments about her mental state, calling her 85, which is code for a possible mental health call, um, laughing, sort of taunting her from outside the bathroom, banging on the door a lot, um, really got people riled up about what was going on. And eventually police uh, kicked in the door, tackled her to the ground, arrested her and took her to jail. And that video sparked a lot of public outrage at a Tulsa City Council meeting as well as on social media. What were most people upset about? Yeah, while the woman, um, LaDonna Paris, did experience some minor injuries to her face during the, the takedown once police kicked in the door, it seemed that a lot of folks were really most upset about the officer's sort of attitude towards her mental state, the taunting and sort of making fun of her, kind of calling her names. That was the part that people really seemed to get upset about and and had the most complaints about um, on social media and during that city council meeting. And what have Tulsa police had to say about it? Well, they haven't said much. Um, after the video went viral and, and people, uh, the you know, the outcry started online, um, they did come out with a public uh, statement that said the banter between these officers, sort of the taunting, um, can be received as unprofessional and had been addressed with the officers. They also said, and this is a quote from their statement, the overall actions of the officers and the way in which the call was handled is within the policies of the Tulsa Police Department. Essentially, they're saying they didn't break any rules. So for this story, you really dug into those policies you just mentioned uh, and spent a lot of time with that body camera footage, right? What did you find? That's right. I took a deep dive into that 400 and uh, excuse me, 543 page policy manual that officers are supposed to act within. I also watched uh, every minute of the five hours worth of body camera footage from the incident. Really wanted to take a look at did these officers in fact stay within those policies or are there areas where um, there's a conflict between their actions and what these policies are sort of directing? them to do. So give us a couple examples of what you found while you were reviewing all that. Well, there were a couple areas of the policy manual that I really focused in on and that some experts I spoke to in law enforcement, previous officers uh, had pointed me to as well. So for instance, the very first page of that manual is an oath for officers to perform their duties with integrity and the courage to respect the dignity and rights of every individual. That's literally on the first page. And a lot of folks online, you know, were saying the way that this woman was treated while she was experiencing a crisis uh, would not fall into that uh, dignity and rights sort of passage. Um, the department's mental health policy um, also says emotionally disturbed people will be treated courteously and humanely. And that's also an area where in the video officers' uh, actions could be considered questionable. Um, for instance, 
uh, Officer Karosha, who responded to this call, you can hear her on the video footage saying to another officer that LaDonna Paris, quote, should be at home crocheting for your grandkids, you cuckoo bird. So comments like that really seem to conflict with the integrity and conduct bits of the Tulsa police policy. So why are police responding to mental health calls like uh, this in the first place, right? She wasn't robbing a store, right? She was having a a mental health crisis. Why do we send police to those instead of uh, mental health professionals? Right. Well, in this case, Tulsa police said, you know, this woman was trespassing. She had locked herself in the bathroom of a, a private business and the business called the police and said, we need her to leave. She won't leave and we need you to come remove her. However, these types of calls, which I think would be considered, you know, minor crime calls by a lot of folks, are being answered by police because, frankly, there's no one else to call. Currently, there are very few options if you have someone who's experiencing a mental health crisis, and especially if that's happening in public, um, to get the help. So, 911 is the default, and that tends to get police officers making these response. Now, there are some efforts to change that, including a national hotline that's coming to Oklahoma over the summer. It's going to be 988, and that hotline number is going to direct calls just like this one to mental health professionals. It's unclear exactly who's going to be responding to those just yet, um, but we should hear more about that in the coming months. Now, how common are interactions like that between police and people having a, a mental health crisis? Well, these types of mental health calls have been growing year after year. Um, in fact, in Oklahoma City, we've seen those numbers double over about the past six or seven years. And Tulsa says they've been experiencing something similar, uh, though they don't actually track their mental health calls anymore in Tulsa. So they couldn't give me an exact number to see how much it is growing there. Um, and in, you know, LaDonna Paris's case, she had some minor injuries, but these these cases, these incidents can go far, far more awry than what happened in this case. Um, Oklahoma police have killed at least 53 people who exhibited signs of mental illness between 2013 and 2021. And that's according to a project called Mapping Police Violence. Of those 53 people who were killed, 11 of them were in Tulsa. So what's next for the Tulsa police officers who responded to this call? Well, there is an investigation being conducted into their actions by internal affairs in Tulsa. So once they complete that investigation, they will essentially hand in a report with recommendations and their finding to the police chief. But it all comes down to that one man's decision. He can he has all the power to decide whether or not he feels like these officers followed policy or not, whether they should be disciplined or not, and what that discipline should look like. So it's ultimately up to, up to Chief Wendell Franklin to make the final decision. All right. Thanks, Whitney. You can read uh, Whitney's story uh, about this particular situation in Tulsa. You can also view the video that's embedded with that story at Oklahoma Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. 
This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.